The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, that was good. I almost feel like we could just close in prayer at this point. But we'll go ahead and do a sermon anyway. Uh, well, good morning. Welcome to Bear Creek Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Bill Pritchett, and it is my honor and privilege to get to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Brian had texted me earlier in the week saying that he was starting to not feel well, so uh, suggested I have something ready to go. And the fact that I'm here gives you an indication that he's still not feeling well, so you can be praying for him. I would be remiss to not take this opportunity to, to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, so Happy Father's Day. Get credit for that. <clears throat> We're going to look at a couple of different passages this morning. The first one that I would like to look at is 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. So 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. And one thing I want to clarify is that this is a message on sanctification, not justification. This is not about what does it mean to be justified, but more, if you're saved, now what? Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is a familiar one often known as the, as the love chapter. It's a common passage to use for weddings. And we need to see this passage in that it follows a section on unity. So chapter 12, it discusses the parts of the body and, and working together. Then when we get to the beginning of chapter 13, Paul's describing what it means to love. And then we get to the verses that we're going to focus on this morning. So 1 Corinthians 13 11 through 13. Let's read this. It says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this, for this day and for this time. On this day that is set aside for us to honor our earthly fathers, this is also the day every week that is set aside to honor you, our heavenly father. We recognize that many in this room were blessed with wonderful, godly fathers that through that relationship were pointed to you. Yet others had difficult and hard relationship with their fathers. That makes it difficult to want to call you father. While sadly, others still don't even know their earthly fathers. But we have all come together here in this room. Help us to encourage one another to lift up your name. Help us to remember that were it not for the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we would not even be here in this room. But Jesus is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before you. We ask your blessings on our time in your word this morning. Humble our hearts that we might be more open to what you would show us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, in order to get the full weight of what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage, 
Let's step back just a bit and and look at this letter as a whole. So if we go back to chapter 1, we see Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you are not lacking in any gift. So this this is quite a church. All the gifts are at work in this church, and they are in operation in the church. And they are eagerly awaiting the return of the gift giver, Jesus himself. But what we also see in looking at this letter as a whole is that Paul is pointing out their pride. That the church in Corinth thinks that because they possess gifts, that they have all that they need. It's as if they already have perfection that's to come when they're in heaven. So again, verse 11 of our text says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. When I was a child, when I was young, when I was immature, I did childish things. But when I grew up, when I became a man, I I did away with those things. I gave up childish ways. There is an expectation that as a Christian, that we are growing, that we are maturing in our faith. We're not remaining as children spiritually, but we are maturing. And just to quickly point out that spiritual maturity and growing in our faith, that it's something that comes up in more places in Scripture than just this passage in Corinthians. Let's take take a look at a few others. Hebrews 6 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Ephesians 4 says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Hebrews 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And 2 Peter 3 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So again, this idea of spiritual maturity or growing in our faith and knowledge of God is, it's not something unique to this, just in this letter to the Corinthians. Scripture repeatedly commands us to mature in our faith. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 specifically exhorts us to abandon childish ways. And as we just saw, it's just one passage of many that encourages such maturity. Our immature love should disturb us and move us to exhibit righteous and mature love that we see in this chapter. This requires us to put an emphasis on the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is love. 
Unlike the Corinthians, we are not to childishly pursue the flashy gifts of the Spirit, but maturity in doctrine and love. So when we go back to our text, 1 Corinthians 13, I think that what's being said here is this. We have a little bit of a a then and now comparison going on. While then, in heaven, we will experience perfection in terms of being absolutely free from, from the implications of sin. Now, here on earth, we do not simply sit in babyhood. We do not sit as children. But now, says Paul, is about maturity. And maturity, which is not the same thing as perfection. We don't look to how we will be in heaven at perfection and think that that is us now. In heaven, we will fully know, right, verse 12. But now we know part. We don't have full knowledge or full maturity now on earth. When the Bible uses this idea of perfection or perfection for heaven, and when Paul speaks about maturity, we're talking about two different things. Heaven is heaven. And spiritual maturity is now. And the fact that the Corinthians were suggesting that heaven was now displayed in spiritual gifts was pointing to the fact that they had a problem with spiritual maturity. They were babyish in their understanding of things. And so Paul says to them, what we need to be looking for is a kind of spiritual fullness, which is expressed in maturity. Now, as an example of the problem that they had with maturity, look back at 1 Corinthians 3.1. What did Paul say? He said, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ or in Christ. He's saying, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but worldly, mere infants or babies in Christ. He says to the Corinthians, you're babies. When we get to chapter 14, it says more on this. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. So, brothers, stop thinking like children, Paul is saying. If we're going to profess to be a Christian, but without sanctification, or without growing to be more and more like Christ, without maturity and maturing in our faith, then we've missed something. We don't want to remain spiritual children, perpetually stuck in infancy. We don't want to be weak, vulnerable, and immature. Nor do we want to be ignorant about God's truth, because we want to fully glorify him for everything he has done. We want to appreciate him in all his fullness, knowing and loving him thoroughly. You see, Paul's great urgency for them was that they might come to maturity. The problem for the Corinthians was that they were elevating their gifts, namely the gift of tongues. They were elevating it to such a place that it was for them a mark of superiority. They believed that they were better than other Christians because they had these gifts. Paul says it's not a mark of your superiority, but your overemphasis on it, that's a mark of your spiritual childishness. Quit the baby talk. Because he says we only see in a mirror, one day we'll see face to face. So heaven is then, this is now. We live now, we stumble now, we fall, we're not at our best. The good we want to do, we don't do. Remember what Paul says in Romans 7. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not want is what I keep on doing. So in our text, verse 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. For now we see dimly, for now we know in part, but then we'll see face to face. Then we will fully know, just as you and I have been fully known. If we live like we are already perfect, like we are already free from temptation and struggles, then we set ourselves up. If we live like we have enough knowledge of God, so we're good, then we may find ourselves ill-prepared when life takes a turn that we didn't plan for. Right now, we are known. We are fully known right now. That's a wonderful phrase. You ought to underline that. I am fully known. By whom? By God. But none of us know God like that. The whole quest for spiritual maturity in Paul's mind. Remember Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But he knows that at best his knowing is an imperfect knowing. But one day, we will know even as we are known. All the questions that we've asked will be answered in an instant when we gaze into his face. All of our uncertainties about pain and about illness and about our heartache for one another will be answered in a moment When we know even as we are known. It calls for patience. It calls for trust. It calls for biblical realism. One day we will see him and we'll be made like him. You'll find the same emphasis in chapter 8 where it says, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Jesus knows me. He knows my name. He knows where I sleep. He knows where I go. He knows where I've been. He knows me. The creator of the universe knows me. Think about that. That is awesome. And the Corinthians were so stuck on playing their trumpets and banging their drums and playing with gifts as toys that they lost sight of the really big things. Now you see, the the person in the Corinthian church, or in any church for that matter, who has all the answers and all the gifts, does not necessarily in himself provide evidence that God is at work. That's what Paul is saying. The fact that you're a walking biblical encyclopedia of knowledge doesn't mean you know God. Knowing facts about God is not the same thing as knowing God. The fact that someone can preach or teach or do their thing, it doesn't mean that they know God. The fact that someone may exhibit gifts is not necessarily an indication that they know God. So if we hang our hat on all those things, we miss the point. We need to not just know about God, but we need to know God. We need to study his word. We should not be content walking around as children 
You may have been a Christian for 40 years or 50 years, but that doesn't mean that you're not still a child in your maturity. Don't confuse childlike faith with childish thinking. Now, it's Father's Day. So let's pick on the dads for just a minute. You're excited, I know. You know, there are some dads who have never grown, who have never matured beyond childish thinking. And the scary part is, is that sometimes they're okay with that. Ask yourself, is that you? Does that describe you? Too often, we as dads are actually content to take an approach that says, well, I believe in God. I said a prayer. That's enough. I got my get out of jail free card. We think that simply by by dragging our kids to church most weeks, then they will stay out of trouble and they'll believe that, that God exists too. Yet what does scripture say? It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They shudder because they knew who he was. You say you believe, but you don't shudder. You can sin and not even bat an eye. We should grow. We should desire to grow. Let's be honest. There's probably some of you who are here in this room. And this morning when you were getting ready, you had to stop to think about where you put your Bible when you got home from church last week. Now, let's just be honest about that. And if that's true, God already knows that. So who are you fooling? You're not reading your Bible during the week. You're not reading other Christian books. You're not engaging in conversation about Christian doctrine. You're not praying. Your faith in God is more like a lifetime membership in a club. You think, okay, I've paid my dues, so now I can just sit back and reap the rewards. If we lack spiritual maturity, we must read everything we can, faith, we can that faithfully and accurately explains God, God's word to us. We must study the Bible and memorize it. We must read commentaries from biblical scholars, listen to sermons from faithful teachers, and read the biographies of godly saints whose lives display the kind of maturity we want to see in our own lives. We must saturate our minds in scripture fueling the Spirit's sanctifying work. I remember hearing John Piper use the illustration once of dipping a sponge in a bucket of water. And when you pull the sponge out out of the water, water then just comes pouring out of the sponge. We need to be so saturated in Scripture that when pulled from it, Scripture comes pouring out of us. And when squeezed, even more comes out. But to continue this analogy, we do have to keep going back to the bucket or eventually the sponge will dry out. But this doesn't just have to be a Father's Day message. This isn't just for dads. We all need to hear this. We can all be guilty here. We are to grow. We are to mature. We are to give up childish ways. And when it says to give up childish ways, it implies action. You intentionally put these things aside. This could be sin in your life. This could be pursuits. Are you still trying to be young? Are you still pursuing childish pursuits? Do you still throw a fit when you don't get your way? And again, this is not just for dads. Are we growing? Are we maturing? Sometimes in in doing marriage counseling, I'll hear people say, 
often after being confronted about something that they do or something about their behavior, they'll say something like, well, you know, I was like this when you married me. As if to say that I was like this when I was young and immature. So how dare you think that I would not still be like this now? Why? I pray that I am not the same man that Jessica married. I pray that I have grown and matured since then. I pray that I have given up childish ways. All right. I I remember one time early in our marriage, I decided that I wanted to make chocolate chip cookies. And Jessica had made a suggestion to do it in a way that I'd never heard of before. She she, She suggested that I make a half a batch. I guess that's a thing. I don't know why you would do that. So I'm trying to do the recipe and follow and trying to half everything as I go along. And I get done and I have, I have cookie dough when I'm done. And I remember to half everything. Well, everything except for the salt and the baking soda. <laughs> Apparently those are important ones to not forget to half. The cookies were inedible. It was terrible. Now, that was a mistake I made because that was something new. I hadn't done it before. I didn't have experience. Now, almost 23 years later, if I still make cookies that way, it would have stopped being funny or cute a long time ago. It would just be annoying now. Our desire in marriage should not be to be the same person that we were when we got married. And our goal as a Christian should not be to be the same person we were when we got saved. We should desire that we have grown, that we mature, that sins that we struggled with then don't have the same power over us now. That's not to say that we don't still have some struggles, but the expectation should be that we are growing in our faith, that there is spiritual maturity. And now we're not just talking about maturity, but spiritual maturity. And we should be very careful to not just automatically assume that those are the same thing. I have known in my day older men who are spiritually immature and younger men who have amazing spiritual maturity. It may often go hand in hand, but not always. But even just maturity is not the goal. We need to do something with it. Maturity is not the end-all, be-all. Once mature, now what? Once mature, we still have work to do. Well, again, we're going to look at a couple of different passages. We're going to come back to this 1 Corinthians 13 passage at the end. But for now, let's take a look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. As you may recall, Titus is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And Titus was a young pastor establishing churches on the island of Crete. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 2... It says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then verse 6 says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So this passage first lays out some biblical qualities of older men. They are to be sober-minded or or clear-headed, dignified. Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. But that's not all. It says in verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled too. 
Help them to not be children anymore. Help them to grow to be godly men. This is your role. If you are an older man, a a mature man, then you have a role to fill. You are not to just sit on your hands and grumble about the youth of today. The Bible says that you are to help. You're to come alongside these younger men and urge them to be self-controlled, to be an example for them. Unless you think this is not your job, remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. The elders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You are to do the work of ministry. And if you're thinking, that's not me, I'm not in a position to do that. Well, then here's the thing. You may still have maturing to do, so you should get with someone to help you grow. And while doing that, you can help someone else. You can be being mentored and and discipled from someone older and more mature while mentoring and discipling someone younger and less mature at the same time. And ladies, there's something here for you too. Titus 2.3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Do we consider the fact that in 2021, encouraging young women to love their husbands and children is countercultural? You want to know how to be an example? to your unbelieving co-workers or unbelieving family members. Love your spouse and your children. Talk positively about them to others. Don't fall into the trap of complaining about your spouse or your kids. Oftentimes when people find out that Jessica and I have four daughters, people will make some comment, something like, whoa, you know, those teen years, those are going to be rough. Or, wow, you poor dad, you probably get eaten alive. We try to answer back with something like, no, we feel blessed. They're wonderful. We actually look forward to those teen years. Love your husband. Love your wife. Love your kids. Talk highly about them, and you will stand out. Then, when pressed, when people ask, you can talk about the Lord. So we need to grow. We need to mature. And then, when we have matured, We're not done. We still have work to do because we're to help younger people to grow and mature. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I'm going to ask you to turn to another passage, Colossians 3.21. Colossians 3.21. It's a familiar verse. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I want to focus for just a minute on the last part, lest they become discouraged. What is the opposite of discouraged? Encouraged, hopeful, joyful. So I would say that verse 21 is giving a negative and a positive. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But it means not only avoid one kind of fatherhood, it also means pursue another kind. Namely, the kind of fatherhood which gives hope 
instead of discouragement, that gives joy instead of discouragement, and gives confidence and courage. Now, if we stopped right there with what we said about that verse, we would not have said anything distinctly Christian about it. I don't know very many parents who would argue that the point of parenthood or the aim of parenthood is to discourage your children. Paul's teaching makes it clear that when he says we should be fathers who give hope instead of discouragement, he means hope in God, not hope in money or hope in popularity or hope in education or hope in a spouse or hope in professional success or hope in a solid retirement. If you'd asked Paul or Jesus, what kind of freedom from discouragement do you want our children to have? He would not have said, I want your children to be freed from discouragement by being filled with hope that they will become wealthy or well-known or married or successful. We know that's not what he means. He means be the kind of fathers who do not discourage your children, but rather fill them with hope in God. Fathers, don't discourage your children, but fill them with joy in God. Teach them early on and show them. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But they can rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope in God. Don't discourage them. Make them joyful in God by helping them to hope in God. The world says, don't discourage a child, but build up his self-confidence. But the Bible says, don't discourage a child, but build up his confidence in God. In fact, the Bible is more precise than that. It teaches, don't discourage a child, but do your best to root out his self-confidence and replace it with a confidence in God. And when it teaches us to root out self-confidence, it means root out even the desire to be or to appear self-confident. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9 says, For we do not want to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who, raised, who raises the dead. To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. So there is an aspect of spiritual maturity that involves humility. Again, remember what we said in the beginning. Paul was pointing out the Corinthians' pride. To grow in spiritual maturity says to recognize that you're not all that. You are a sinner in need of a savior. You need Jesus. Jesus doesn't need you. Spiritual maturity involves humbling ourselves, praying for a greater desire to know God. If you are a parent and you want your kids to have a hope in God and in his faithfulness, then this starts with you. You need to have your hope there too. It's more than just praying before dinner. It's more than just reading a devotion with your family. It's more than just making sure your kids don't fall into the wrong crowd. Those can be good things, but if our faith in God is not genuine, or if our faith in God lacks maturity, your kids are going to see that. 
We might be able to get away with an immature faith for a while when life is going our way. But at some point, life will get hard and maturity in our faith becomes critical. When the rug gets pulled out from under your feet, what are you going to grab onto? Now, don't confuse that with the need to have all the answers. Don't confuse that with the need to be perfect yourself. This past weekend, we celebrated Rebecca's graduation from high school. She worked hard and she did a good job. Not because we were perfect, but because God was gracious. Schooling was not always perfect. In fact, it was rarely, if ever, perfect. So the confidence that we are to build into our children is not self-confidence, but confidence in the grace and power of God. Don't be afraid, for I am with you, Jesus says. This is the confidence that Rebecca exhibited when her life took an unexpected turn a few years back. As we grow, as we mature, we then come alongside and encourage others in their growth. We don't go it alone. Now, in closing, I want to go back to where we started. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. Let's read it again. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love that we find in verse 13. These traits or these factors provides for us what has been described as the essence of genuine Christian experience. If we want to know what genuine Christian experience is, we go to verse 13. Paul, in verse 13, is not describing natural qualities. Verse 13 is not a verse representative of the kind of man who finds it easy to believe, nor is it indicative of the person who is naturally hopeful or of the individual who is warm and friendly. Because this group of three appears all over the place as well. You can find it in little books when you're buying a book in the bookstore. You can find it in a greeting card. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And it has this dimension to it that may convince us that what, what is being described here is something that anybody can display at any moment in time and can opt into. The fact is there are, there are non-Christian people who are quick to believe things. There are non-Christians who are naturally optimistic. There are non-Christians who are warm and friendly as anybody you'd ever meet. But Paul's not addressing that in the 13th verse. He's describing here divine, distinctive, certain evidence of God's work in our lives. Indeed, verse 13 answers the question, what is a true Christian? If you're uncertain about that, hopefully it will be more clear soon. This is one of those phrases that Paul is known for. He uses this three-word saying again and again in his letters. Let me give you just two examples of it. If you turn over a few pages to Colossians chapter 1, you'll find him referring to the exact same things. Colossians chapter 1, he thanks God for the, 
God the Father, for the church in Colossae, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And secondly, of the love that you have for all the saints. And thirdly, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When you go to 1 Thessalonians, you find the exact same thing. He blesses the Thessalonians, remembering them in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, because he says, I remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we're at the very essence of Christian experience. Now we're at the apex of Christian maturity. Now we know what will characterize a genuine spirit-filled assembly of God's people. Regardless of the dimensions of gifts that God chooses to give or to withhold. Notice that the faith is not simply saying, I believe in God. And this is clarified for us in Colossians 1. What the individual says, who says that, who, who knows his faith, the converted Christian is not saying, I believe in God, but instead, my faith and my trust are in Jesus alone. I'm not relying on external characteristics. I'm not relying on works of righteousness. I'm not relying on my attendance. I'm not relying on any of that. It is the faith and trust implicitly in the Lord Jesus and his atoning death. The love is also clearly designated. Clarified again in Colossians 1, the love to which he refers is a love for other believers. And some of you know this far better than others. Some of you could talk about the fact that you used to think that Christians were some of the strangest people in the world. If ever there was a church that you would not attend, it would be one of those churches. You did everything you could to avoid being around Christians. And then you became one. And now you sit with them. You talk with them. You love them. Who did that? Jesus did that. So this is genuine Christian experience, a faith that is in Christ and a love that is for those who love Christ. That's what worship is about. You know a faith is genuine because they will have a trust in Jesus and a love for God's people. Not always a perfect love, but it will be there. And what about this hope? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. Well, this hope is an assurance of the life of the world to come. And unless the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's heart, they're devoid of any assurance of heaven. They can't put their head on the pillow at night with any sense of certainty of where they will go if they don't wake up. Now, the person who doesn't have this cannot say that, mean it, and fall asleep with the same confidence. But when the Spirit of God changes a life, he brings about with that person a faith in Jesus, a love for the people of Jesus. And an absolute assurance, not an assurance that removes anxiety, but a deep-seated assurance that heaven is my home. So there's the test. There's the test that all of us need to take. If your personal trust and faith is in Jesus, and God has given you a love for those who love Jesus, and if you found in your heart a hope and an assurance of heaven, and no matter how weak you are, how young you are, how shaky and sinful you might be, it would seem that you have in your life evidence of a genuine Christian faith. 
Because these are the marks. These are the identifying signs that God is at work. These are most valuable and more important than all of the spiritual gifts of God. These are the very stuff of Christian experience. Indeed, minus them, you're not a Christian. This is God at work in and through the human heart producing these things. Faith, hope, and love. Is that your life? If not, we'd love to talk to you about it. Well, it begs the final question. If faith, hope, and love are present and they remain, why is the greatest love? Let me try to touch on that in a little bit of time that we have left. Why would love be the greatest? Does God have faith? Who does God believe in? He's God. He doesn't need to, doesn't trust or have faith. It's outside of himself. Does God have hope? God doesn't have hope in anything else because he's the source of all of our hope. So God doesn't trust and God doesn't hope. Can God love? God is love. That's why the greatest is love. The Bible doesn't ever say God is faith or God is trust or God is hope. But the Bible says that God is love. And when God is working a new life in our lives, then there are evidences which begin to emerge in our lives, which the people around us, the people close to us will see, and they'll begin to identify. And suddenly these traits begin to emerge, and our friends, they say to us, you know, I don't understand what happened to you. You're, you're still the, the same person. You're still a nice guy, but there's just something different about you. Well, then you've got a wonderful opportunity at that point to tell them that the greatest thing that can happen to anyone in their life is to see these evidences of God's grace. And only one of them goes all the way to eternity. Faith and hope are a means to an end, which is love, but love lasts forever. Because he knows us, and one day we will fully know him. You want to test? If people would be surprised to learn that you're a Christian, if people you interact with would be skeptical if you said that this was you, well, that should give us some pause. That should cause us to want to dive into his word, to get to know him better, to pray that our lives would be more reflective of Jesus. So the greatest thing for a church, for a life, is not the manifestation of spectacular gifts, but it's that the world might see something in us, no matter how tiny, that looks like God. That's the challenge. The real test is love. We can speak ecstatically, but if there's no sign in my life that God is at work, I'm just making noise. I may have great knowledge or faith, but if there's not the least evidence of God's presence, then I'm nothing. I may display radical self-sacrifice, but devoid of the fragrance of his presence, as far as God is concerned, it doesn't mean a thing at all. The Corinthians held up external gifts, all of which were means to an end. But Paul directs their attention to faith, hope, and love. The heartbeat of our relationship with God is not in gifts we display, but is in the fact that God knows us, and one day we will fully know him. And in response to the high regard to which the Corinthians had for the spectacular, Paul tells them that the really important things are faith, hope, and love, and there's nothing greater than love. So I'm going to challenge some of you. 
Are you taking advantage of opportunities to grow and mature in your faith? Do you attend a Bible study during the week? We have men's groups that meet on Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Saturday morning. There are women's Bible studies that meet during the year. Tracy is leading a study now where they're going through a book. Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? To grow and mature spiritually doesn't just happen because we've been a Christian for a long time. It requires action on our part. Do you love? Do you love the things of God? Do you love the people of God? So again, we don't just come to church and sit on our hands. We come to church and we desire to grow and become more and more like Christ. We come and we love each other. We connect with each other. This is why we do days like today with lunch. It's not about the food. It's about building those relationships. Don't miss the opportunities for relationship. Don't miss the opportunities to grow and mature in your faith. Don't miss these opportunities to encourage one another and challenge one another to grow. Let's pray. Lord God, we do need you. In every hour of every day, we need you. Father, we confess that we, we really struggle with taking this for granted. And at times, we may even struggle to believe it. Help our unbelief. Help us to see our need to call out to you in prayer. Our need to sing songs of praise to you. Our need to run to you in your word. Our need to be in community with other believers. Or even our need to go through hard things in life. We thank you that you provided all of these things to draw us closer to you. And we pray that you continue to work in our hearts in these areas. We pray that you help us to grow in our knowledge of you and who you are. Help us to set aside those things that we hold on to that distract us from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.